This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hey everybody, this is Dr. David Proden and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube, it might appear that I'm crying. No, actually this is allergies. I've been sneezing like crazy. Um, We've had 80 plus degrees. It's October. Things are blooming and blossoming here in Wisconsin that typically are dormant this time of year. So yes, it's been crazy. Um, but no, nothing to be sad about at all in today's show. So our title, so I'm conducting research with Iranian professors. And then this happened, get into that a little bit further along in the show. Uh, let's start out though with some anecdotes. Um, first my middle school daughter just completed her work on a school fundraiser And I'm not real keen on these school fundraisers because they require the kids to not only contact all of their relatives to, you know, make sales of $15 tins of popcorn and expensive pizzas and all that other stuff, but um, they, the kids are incentivized to canvas the neighborhood, which really from a safety standpoint, isn't a good thing. Um, unless, you know, a parent is, is going with them, but, uh, for middle schoolers, no, I mean, you don't know who is, uh, you know, three, four blocks away, who might be on a registry, what else is going on. It just, it just seems like it's not appropriate for this day in age. And it also kind of puts a weird pressure on your neighbors. Like, <laughs> okay, we'll buy from your kids, but you know. Um, and this whole thing of why the school is is doing this, the whole purpose, the fundraiser, they sent us a video link, and it's just generic to any school of you know whatever they're going to purchase through this. So I, I don't like this. I think this needs to, to end. I've got to figure out a way that I'm going to tactfully approach this. But um, the, there's some other parts of this that, that grind <laughs> with me I don't like. You know, One is the tackiness of the prizes. So the kids can earn, um, you know, like these silly cups or something like that with silly straws or like a pass to a water park or things like that. But most of it is, if it's 
material stuff is just junk. You know, it's it's stuff that's going to end up in a landfill. It's garbage. So you know, we're we're going against environmental consciousness, environmental awareness, just some environmental common sense. It's like, great, like I got this crappy pen, like I don't want this, you know, so just keep it. Like it's better to give me nothing. Um, so, and the whole thing of economics too, it's like we're giving you these garbage prizes which are totally totally expendable and, and are just going to be garbage. Um, and so we're, we're paying something to get these bulk, you know, whatever, or a rubber bracelet you know, you can wear with your school name or something. I mean, all stuff is going to be garbage. So on a lot of levels, I just don't like this. I don't care for it. And um, I I ran this by a few people. I'm like, am I kind of off (laughs) on this? And they're like, no, we feel the same way. So again, this middle school fundraiser, I'm glad it's over. And uh, yeah, we will be getting our order of extremely overpriced unhealthy food before long. So um, I'm driving to work today and all of a sudden the, uh, the garage door opener pops off my visor and I, I keep it on the, the passenger side visor because on my visor, I have a CD holder because yes, the car still has CDs. Um, and, and, uh, I'm driving and it's never done this before. It just pops off. Now I've got the windows up, um, but it, I can't find the thing. And it, it worked its way underneath the passenger seat, but kind of like in a little nook under. I mean, so I'm like, <laughs> it was the craziest thing. So yeah, I'm like, whoa. Um, and uh, I was teaching teaching a law class this weekend. So in order to teach this class, it's two hours away. So I have to drive. I have to get up about four o'clock in the morning. I get to the university, and then once I am there i have time to set up at the university um and they they still use i, I talked about this I, I think before but they still use like a, the, the chalkboard so it's a old private university very well maintained so it's kind of this cool nostalgic feel about it but then teach for nine hours and then usually students want to hang around and talk afterwards about very specific legal situations going on in third districts and, and wanting to get some ideas. So, which is fine. Um, and then it's, you know, getting to the parking lot and getting back home. So long day, those are really long days and it just kind of wipes out the whole weekend. But, uh, some of the stuff was absolutely outstandingly crazy that we talked about. Um, and one was, um, the legal implications of, of this is an authentic situation, a school, being asked to administer cannabis oil to a student with a seizure disorder. So there's a medical order, okay? A medical order saying, when my child has a seizure, cannabis oil will help end that seizure, okay? So the problem with that, of course, is that when the school does that, um, or if they choose to do that, they're in violation of the law because now they have cannabis oil on, on campus and they are also administering this controlled substance. So you run into this whole murky area. So a few variables that come into this. One is um, if you do agree to do this, then, you know, what if your school nurse or other designated school personnel say, I'm I'm not going to do this. Like it's against the law. I'm not going to be in possession of of this. I'm not going to administer this. So, you know, then what if somebody does agree to do it? 
they administer this medication and then the police cite them for possession and distribution of a controlled substance. So what level does the medical order trump any of this? If not, um, what happens then, you know, if that person is, is, you know, found guilty of a misdemeanor or felony or something like that that administered it? Can they come back and sue the district saying, hey, you told me that to do this as part of my job? So we got into all of the sides on this. And also, is it better just to, as, as the district, to um, tell the student to stay home um, until you get some kind of statement from the state, the Department of Public Instruction, saying that they have your back in this? Because we talked about how lawyers will kind of give you the gamut. You know, that's the thing with the legal profession. I mean, they'll give you, well, here you could do this, and here's the consequence, and you could do this, here's a, the potential consequences, the range and all of that, and if it totally goes to hell, like, you know, you're still responsible. And you can have this parsing out of the board where the school board could say, well, the superintendent told this person it was okay to do it, but we never told the superintendent it was okay, so it could just be this mess. So we got into all of these different perspectives on, on ways to approach this, but really to be informed, and then work with your legal counsel, and really work with with the state. But this stuff is happening. And, and, and what's, what's really happening and what's, what's exciting for me in this law class, and it's a 700 level law class. So it's, it's really high top end, um, is that there are so many things that have advanced faster than what the law can keep up with. Um, so that includes, you know, administering, for example, you know, cannabis oil under a medical order, uh, to, if a seizure manifests as a way to end the seizure, you know, faster, you know, if you don't administer it, seizure goes on. What if there's brain damage? You can have a lawsuit there. Um, also, um, transgender students participating in sports and in Wisconsin, our athletic, uh, state athletic association has some really, um, uh, very prescriptive, um, I, I don't know uh, how to best describe it, but for example, a student has to have a documented hormone treatment therapy for like one year before they can participate in another sport. This this can all be looked up and verified, but but this is some very uh, complicated protocol that really puts it back onto the district and district responsibilities. And um, so districts, these superintendents, like you know, in this this law class I'm teaching, they really get put in a hard spot. So I don't envy these folks at all. Great people, but very, very hard to navigate. And we also talked a little bit about dress code. Not a lot, but um, the the reason that came up is some schools are just dropping dress code. They're just not bothering with putting the time into trying to enforce it. Alameda um, School District in California is one. Um, and actually what's happening, though, is they're, they're saying, you know, for it's not like they drop the dress code and then everyone's wearing pajamas <laughs> or something like that. It doesn't happen that way. Uh, but the dropping of the dress code really doesn't change the behavior at all. Uh, the the violators uh, tend, you know, who are violating before tend to still violate the you know what you consider acceptable. So you do it on a case by case basis and talk to kids. But it actually is saving a lot of time. So that's one of those things that's kind of becoming antiquated. But it also you know, creates this situation too of like, are we just you know, so, so we have the Milwaukee Brewers playing in, you know, for a Birth in the World series. And and uh, some somebody pointed out to me, 
you know, look at this picture from the World Series back like in the 1930s or 40s and everyone was wearing suits and formal and it's just the way it was when you went out of the, the house and and now is it just going to, are we getting to a society and we were shopping at, at Walmart, you know, just the other night, you know, six o'clock, but you know, probably like half the people there have on pajama bottoms and just, you know, or like a sweat top or something like that. And I mean, I guess I kind of get it, but at the same time, I mean, isn't there some standard, like we just maintain when we're out in public that we, that we want. Um, and there have been studies done on this that, you know, if you do dress more formal, you act more, um, in a formal way and you're, there is more respect that is provided to you. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I just think, I I think we've lost a lot. Um, and maybe some people say it's not a big issue. I don't know. I'd rather go back to wearing, um, a sport coat and a, a dress shirt, you know, like when I do the podcast. Okay. So when I do the podcast, I, I, most people listen to the podcast. Um, but I do put it out on YouTube. So when people look at the podcast, you know, it's, I'm in a dress shirt and often in a sport coat, but it's a clean presentation. I have some, you know, professional signage and back me. I have more signage. that's actually not up at the moment. The reason is when I do some contract work, um, for some other districts and organizations, I need that blank space in the back because I superimpose logos on top of that. Um, but that doesn't work in this show because the show splits out into where we have like the safety doc commercial and some other graphics and things like that. So right now it is just the blank spot of paneling on the back wall. So you'll have to imagine, I might throw something up periodically throughout the show, but we do have the 405 media back there, the 405media.com, where this show airs, 2 p.m. Um, what is it? Uh, PST. Yeah. Out of Los Angeles, P- uh, 2 p.m. So um, October 3rd, we had the presidential alert come through on the cell phones. At least some of us did. It, it came through on mine, actually, um, right on time. Now, I think track phones and, and some other things, like people are saying, like, it didn't come through. But um, I... I don't have a problem with, with that. Now, a lot of, there was mocking of it on Saturday Night Live, um, other mocking on late night shows, which I thought was stupid um, because I, I, I don't think that, um, you know, one, that this type of system is going to be abused. And, you know, uh, again, um, what is the point of, of mocking this system? Now, you know, it was actually in 2017, Illinois, Bill uh, HR 0030, the Illinois General Assembly named October Zombie Preparedness Month. <laughs> this is true. And they actually um, did a zombie alert through their um, kind of phone state system. And they did it just as a novelty um, to check the system and to, to kind of get people a little bit more involved in it because if you know, if it wasn't zombie, if, which of course it's not going to be zombie, but, um, you know, if it, if it was something else that they needed to alert for, that that would be the exact same way they were going to do it. So they had a little bit of fun with it. Um, but it's confusing for me. And I talked to a few people about this, or I was contacted, I should say, and, and then, you know, gave, gave, um, my opinion on this and, and the emergency broadcast system, EBS, which has been around for decades, um, should be able to, to fully do this, like should have this capability 
they revamped the ICS or Instant Command System with the National Instant Management System, or NIMS, uh, maybe about 10 years ago. And so EBS should have the same capability as a presidential alert you received. So then why have the presidential alert instead of just having this be an EBS alert? And the rationale that some conspiracy theorists come up with is that the presidential alert could then be issued by the president or by a group close to the president in case a coup of the government was happening. It would be a workaround um, the other systems. So, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know why the two, two exist, and, and I don't know then why the EBS system wasn't the one that was tested versus this presidential alert system. Um, so that part is a mystery, but again, I don't really have a big issue <laughs> with it. And I think these people mocking it and, and saying, you know, well, this is just going to be, an, we're going to see this progress into um, the president making direct pleas to the American people on different policies or, you know, whatever and things. And I'm like, I, that's not going to happen. Um, so I think it's, I, I think this will at some point just be rolled into EBS, um, because I don't know why the two would exist, um, and why there's this redundancy and system. Um, well, I guess, you know, some of that might make sense, but then why haven't we tested EBS out at a national level? Like, you know, Every whatever is National EBS Day. And I think I, this should be tied into <laughs> maybe like someday, you know, like, you know, Halloween, that this happens every Halloween at, uh, you know, 1.31 p.m. or something like that, Eastern Time. I don't know. So, um, but yeah, I mean, kind of kind of some weird things there. So I've had a lot of, uh, a lot of work regarding um, hostile work environment and and spent a lot of time on uh, Sunday. So the day after I taught this class, I got up at four in the morning, got home late at night. Um, spent a lot of time um, working with um, with somebody on on uh, a a um, I, I don't know if I don't want to say game plan, but but a strategy regarding a um, person who had been the recipient. Or who had been not the recipients who who had been the alleged author um, of a hostile uh, work event. So it is it is so complicated, folks. I mean, it is so complicated. And ultimately, um, I I was able to also obtain through uh, Patrick uh, Rykamp R E H C A M P. Uh, wrote an article for a banking uh, journal in Minneapolis in September, um, and he wrote, he interviewed two attorneys who were talking on saying, yeah, we're seeing a sharp increase in workplace harassment, sexual harassment, um, hostile work environment. Those, those, both of those are, are, are spiking and, uh, and there's no like drop off in sight. I mean, this is just, it's so common right now. And, um, it was a fascinating article because I, I really felt it was unbiased. It was just saying, here's what's happening. Um, didn't necessarily get into the advice side of it because I don't know if there is any good advice on this. I, I think there's some advice on this and I do hope to 
do a podcast specific to that, but I want to do that with at least one or two other people um, who are into um, understanding workplace um, law and, and human resources. And, and I've kind of got that working behind the scenes with, with some different people. Um, but yeah, this, this really helped kind of validate what I see for expert witness request. And most of it is coming through of saying um, an allegation of, of harassment or hostile work environment. I'm not going to parse out the, the definitions between those right now. Uh, but it's tough when when these people become um, accused of this, um, that they are the alleged author of this. And, and then it is the perception oftentimes of the recipient saying that they perceive that this person is contributing to a hostile work environment. Not to, not to discredit the recipient, but I'm saying um, some of this is perceptual that the other person, um, this isn't a concrete, you know, like here are the text messages that this person has, has sent or here is a recorded conversation, you know, where this person had said these things. Some of it, you know, is, is most of it is not that black and white. Um, but once people get put on leave for an investigation, and something I remind people right away um, when I when I get asked to do these consultations, well, one, I'm not a lawyer, you know, but um, when I'm working with law firms and, and working with other people, HR when HR is there to protect the company, and and you should not expect if you are accused of something that HR is going to give you an impartial. <laughs> um, due process investigation. Okay. That might be in the handbook. That's not in the reality book. So, um, that's where there are very specific strategies for somebody who is the alleged author and immediately is put on leave. And then what the actions of HR, um, human resources are, and then how to respond to those actions. So I spent a lot of time, um, this weekend on one specific matter. Um, Helping. I mean, I literally put together maybe like four pages of very, very detailed outline for this for this um, requesting uh, party. Again, this is something that I do, um, and as as an expert witness, and then you know, in professional consultations in a non lawyer role. But uh, it's it's I don't know if scary is the word. It's almost beyond scary. It it is where. You know, accusations can instantly disable careers. And even at the very best recovery, um, there's always some doubt in people's mind. It's hard to make somebody whole. And once something like this happens, human resources will typically try to dismiss the employee, separate employment, and not go through a long, deep process in this, especially where it might be known, like this employee at this company was accused of whatever, you know, this this alleged or this other employee said they were the recipient of. So they'll try to make these things go away. And then it also becomes an issue of if someone is, if it's pretty flat out that they are going to, their best option is to agree to separate employment, how to negotiate the best severance exit package that you can and also that you can then move into another position. Um, 
and and start over and and hopefully not have this this happen. Um, but it, it's scary. It, it really, really is um, scary. I was talking with a friend of mine, um, and we were we were on a podcast on a panel, and and he was he's younger. He's not married, uh, but he was saying like even the dating scene for him, like sh- he's thinking the, the age of chaperones is that going to come back? Another uh, friend of mine um, who sometimes needs to go out for business to off-site locations. Um, and if there is a female employee that goes with him and they're in the company vehicle, uh, he's considering talking to his employer and saying, listen, I'll drive myself there to this location and I won't claim mileage. Like I will do this because I don't want this opportunity that I'm in this vehicle with this other person and 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 some allegation surfaces, you know, either immediately five years from now, ten years from now, um, it is to that point where some of some people are feeling um, that they need to do this to really protect themselves in these shifting sands right now of of allegations that seem like they can span. Um, well, they, I mean, they can go back. Uh, you know, virtually indefinitely. I mean, we know in into high school that they can go back and how far into, you know, middle school. And when we were growing up, you know, well, we, as in my generation, um, you had your your camera with film and film was pretty expensive in developing. So, I mean, you didn't have a lot of pictures of things. Um, You know, camcorders were these massive things that sat on your shoulder, and so people didn't have those in VHS tapes. And so things weren't recorded, you know, and phone calls were phone calls, and it was before email. But the kids today, I mean, the trail that they will leave, um, so your 14-year-old today, when they get to be age 45, every blog post they made, every tweet, anything that they put out there, this is still going to be harvestable. People are going to find it with probably relative ease. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Post-game show is brought to you by... Christ, I can't find it. The hell with it. But, you know, when you tell someone that you're participating in research with um, um, professors from Iran, so people are like, well, like what? <laughs> like, because, I mean, what do we think of when we hear that in the media? Um, you know, it's, it's, it, you, you immediately throw it's like a nuclear research. I mean, what are you doing here? I mean, are you, yeah, you know, sharing, you know, a, atomic properties and, and stuff like that. It's like, no, nope. It's, um, 
it is it is not you know what what that narrative has become. Um, actually, these are very established researchers. Go online; you can find many many publications, um, and work in the they they work in the psychology department, and then underneath at the four exclusively with except um, exceptional children. Um, or children with special needs. Lingo's a little different between the United States and, and Iran, obviously. But anyway, let's see, the abstract. So the abstract is, is the summary of the research. So by reading the abstract, you should be like, okay, like I understand what the study was about. So if you'd want to then pull a whole study and um, get the literature review of what was reviewed to come up with the study, what the format was, how many people were studied, the results and findings, implications for future research and practice, stuff like that. That's all. The abstract, though, is like a paragraph. So let's read it. The aim of current research was to study the relationship between resiliency and attachment to God with hope in mothers of children with specific learning disability. The design of this research was correlational and statistical population included all of the mothers of children with specific learning disability in the city of Tabriz, T-A-B-R-I-Z, in 2018. The method of purposeful convenience sampling was applied on 131 mothers of those children in the inventories of Connor Davison's resiliency, as well as Rowat and Kirkpatrick's attachment to God and Snyder's hope were implemented to gather the data. The results of the correlational matrix indicate a significant positive relationship between both the resiliency and secure attachments out to God with hope. But there is a significant negative correlation between avoidance and anxiety attachment styles to God with hope. In addition, concurrent regression analysis revealed that among the resiliency and secure anxious and avoidance attachment variables, it was only the resiliency which was capable to predict hope. Okay, we get enough of this. So anyway, let, let me tell you what this means. <clears throat> and here's our, here's our, I, I'm thirsty. So will I add that, edit this out? There's a slim possibility. It was, um, <clears throat> goodness, I was at Mountain Dew, by the way. Like, um, yeah, I haven't had a, a beer for a long time. And because of, of us, you know, kind of medical thing I was dealing with, it's, it's a long time until I can actually do that again. So, um, so what the research is looking at. So you might say, oh, yeah, okay, so research of, of God and faith and all of that. Well, no, no, no. No, no, no. It's, it's different. It's more than that. It, it is. It's being. It's being very objective. And, and here's here's what it's doing. It's saying, if you, as a mom of a child with a disability, um, have a strong belief in God, and God defined as like an omnipotent, um, omnipotent uh, being, spiritual being, other being out there, omnipotent. Okay. Um, that is, you, you have this, this belief that, that, this, that God exists. So God is, is this very encompassing definition. Um, and that if you have this belief that statistically, okay, you are going to demonstrate more resiliency, um, personal resiliency and resiliency in, in um, working and serving your child with a disability, okay? 
So there is a strong correlation um, with this study with mothers in Iran who believe in God of saying, you know what, I I can get through this. I get with with my my child this this disability. They don't see it as um, they don't they don't have a victim mentality on this. They don't also have the mentality of God will take care of it, that this other entity will make the problems go away. Um, they are stronger um, when they have setbacks with their with the child. It could be medical setbacks that they recover to um, what they would consider a baseline. For example, you know, like going back to um, eating and sleeping and a level of anxiety that would have would have been present before this setback um, with the child. So this is this is really powerful stuff because um, what the study is showing, so I'm, I'm giving you just the abstract. We're not getting into all of the statistical side of it, the other, the other parts I've been privileged to. Um, but what, what this is showing is that we have, we have a big juxtaposition or comparison between this and, and Western society of Western society not as strongly tied so some of this is anecdotal, and I've done some research on this too, so add, add to a literature review, but it's not like I've gone out and I've interviewed people, but we have, what do we have? I mean, as a special education director, what do we have in, in the United States? We have, we have a social system, um, socialized education uh, for serving students, and then also special education is, is socialized. So we, I, whether you have this this faith or not, I mean, first of all, it's not as prevalent anecdotally in the, in the United States as it is in other countries, including Iran. And we have more of of what do we what do we see in America? One is is it's it's a victim mentality um, of that if there is a God, that God has done this. To me, God has has given me this this child with the special special need, and that was a, that was a wrongful act by God. And I'm saying this through meta analysis of research. I'm not that everybody is this way, but the other part is that's very different in Western society is where the parents seek so called resilience is external. It's all external. It's going to social media, social media groups on, you know, students with autism or students and the specific learning disability here is different. So it's actually gets much more severe in Iran than, than it does in the U S where the U S breaks down more into different disability areas, including intellectual disability. So some of that would be included in this Iranian definition here of specific learning disability. But anyway, the, you know what happens in the United States? You you become part of a group, um, or you are posting to social media everything that you're going through with your family. You're videotaping this and and posting, and you are ask you know you're seeking likes and views, and that's your validation, and and that is your, um, I I don't want to say your resilience, um, because I don't think it is resilience. I I I think um, it is a justification for what you're feeling. So there's a big difference here in this, this strength of 
this um, resiliency and attachment to God with hope in mothers of children and specific learning disability in Iran and maybe Eastern culture by Iran versus the United States. So, and I think there's, there's a, a lot to be learned from the potential for just if, if we look at what resiliency is um, when we are not seeking resiliency through social media or through what the state can provide to us that we can provide through having just a, a mentality that we are going to get through this. That's almost like a mentality we had in the U.S., what, back like in the 30s or the 40s, right? Or even maybe the 50s, um, but especially during World War II. Like, you know, we're going, that we're, we'll get together and we'll get through this, or families will get through things. Um, so, yeah, I, I want to go through a research study. Uh, this one is called Adult Personal Resilience, A New Theory, New Measure, and Practical Implications by Robert J. Taramina, T-A-O-R-M-I-N-A, um, out of Taipei, China. So, um, but really does does a nice this this uh, this is out of psychological thought, um, and the year is 2015. But there's a few sections I want to read, and then I want to go through it. I'm actually going to take a 20 question. Um, survey and give you my my thoughts on on that. But um, so it talks about resiliency, and here and it doesn't say it doesn't say Doctor Robert. So let's just say I'm just going to say Robert. The last name's throwing me off a little bit. So let's say the researcher. So the researcher said it's important to distinguish general from personal resiliency. All right, so. Here's, I'm going to read this. Oh, first, the term resilient should be defined to gain a clear understanding of the concept. The term comes from the Latin resiliere, which means to recoil. Thus, resilience means to rebound, spring back, and have elasticity, flexibility, or recuperability. Also, the Oxford English Dictionary offers two meanings. A, able to recoil or spring back into shape after bending, stretching, or being compressed. Reminds me of the Incredibles movie. Um, so that's where we talked about like a sponge that you'd crunch it down, let go, and it would go, come back to its original size and capacity. Or B, able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions, such as a person. Um, hence, the dictionary defines or definitions reveal that resiliency can occur in inanimate objects as well as animate beings. So again, um, something, you know, a uh, difficult condition for a person, they lose their job, uh, a loved one gets sick, a loved, a loved one passes away, they suffer some kind of, of personal injury or something like that. How they recover from that, how they withstand that they come back. So um, also a little bit later on in, in this, uh, this page, for human beings, personal resilience refers specifically to the ability of a person to endure and to recover from difficulties. Unfortunately, even in the field of human resilience, there have been different conceptions of what the term means, ranging from environmental influences that are external to the person, such as social support given to children, to spiritual influences on elderly persons. 
But for clarity of the theory, external influences ought not to be included in defining personal resilience, which should be regarded as a characteristic that exists within a person. Okay, okay. So under that case, the in, in Western culture, the United States, let me, let me go back in this last sentence. For clarity of the theory, external influences ought not to be included in defining personal resilience, which should be regarded as a characteristic that exists within a person. If you're going out to face your Facebook group or your likes or your post on uh, different social media, your blogs or whatever, is that's that's not resiliency. That that is that's asking other people to crowdfund your emotions. You, you see what I'm saying on this? So there's a big difference from having this internal resiliency, such as the research project that I was a part of with the belief in God or the omnipotent entity. And then by having that belief, internally you manifest the ability to be resilient. It's not like God is giving you extra likes on your Facebook page, anything like that. So adult personal resilience um, kind of has four characteristics to it. One is determination. So de- determination is defined as the willpower and firmness of purpose that a person has and the decision to persevere and to succeed. So defined as willpower and firmness of purpose. Purpose. Remember, agency, purpose, determination. Okay. Second one is endurance. So endurance is defined as the personal strength and fortitude that one possesses to withstand unpleasant or difficult situations without giving up. So when the going gets tough, the tough gets going, kind of endurance. I mean, that you are sticking with it, the strength and fortitude that, you know, it's right now people in areas that have flooded due to, you know, the hurricanes or or storms and, and they are, you know, into their second, third, fourth month of flooding and, and but the endurance to stay with their property, to rehab it, to rehab their home. Um, very much evident. Listen to the last podcast I did with Katie Pashan. The third is adaptability. So we've talked about determination, endurance, now adaptability. Adaptability is defined as a capacity to be flexible and resourceful and to cope with adverse environments and adjust oneself to fit into changing conditions. This is huge in my book, like Lessons of Lower Manhattan, Adaptability. On September 11, 2001, all of these people are thrust into chaos as as the attacks are happening across the U.S., but the Twin Towers get hit by planes and are destroyed in New York City. 500,000 people are headed down to the Harbor Battery Park, and boat captains of tugboats and various craft come together, and these people adapt. The, The tugboat captains, the other captains adapt, and they form this rescue system this rescue force and system that operates for nine hours to get 500,000 people off a battery park in over to New Jersey and other areas. So this adaptability, and, and that really comes into knowing when you're, what your Taurus is. This is, has a high awareness of Taurus or your, your self-similarity. And then knowing when you're outside of it, which is chaos, and then being able to adapt to that. So the fourth comes down to recuperability. So we talked about determination, endurance, adaptability and recuperability. Recuperability is defined as the ability to recover 
physically and cognitively from various types of harm, setbacks, or difficulties in order to return to and reestablish one's usual condition, which is actually called the Taurus. So it's like, um, you know, that most days you can expect a very similar routine. Nothing is ever the same, but kind of a similar routine. But if one day is like totally, we've had floods and tornadoes and all kinds of crazy weather and all of this stuff has happened, then that is unusual. That is taking you out. It's put anxiety. It's maybe even brought chaos if it's made you evacuate or some damage to your home. How you how you recover from that physically and cognitively. And in, in, in a lot of times, especially I see this in schools, there can be a traumatic event that happens in the school. Not necessarily a school shooting, but it could be a, a very violent outburst by a student like ripping up a whole classroom. And then there isn't some kind of debriefing that goes on. Like I'm a, I'm a county, I work for the county. Well, work, I'm trained. I give a service to the county as a debriefer, critical instant debriefer after an event could be um, accident on the interstate fire EMS response to something like that. But um, it's how people recover physically and then this cognitive part. And the cognitive part is overlooked a lot. It's overlooked a lot in schools, almost exclusively in schools. People are like, oh, it'll bounce back. Like they're not, we're not going to have a debriefing and get people back to that. Then you end up with things like cumulative stress disorder. So recuperability, and I think there's a lot that we can do with recuperability um, when we talk about resilience and getting, getting people back. Um, that was something, what, it, in World War One that um, in, in the trenches they were finding – you know, that they would they would limit the exposure of soldiers in the trenches to maybe like two or three weeks, and then they, they'd cycle them back out. And then they they, they would, re, you know, re, they would recuperate <laughs> after that. They would, they would find a baseline, and they didn't have so much time in the, um, uh, you know, in that awful condition of being in the trenches that it wasn't irreparable. Um, So let us go. Although some psychologists may have considered the physical aspect of resilience, they rarely mentioned its physiological foundations. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Post-game show is brought to you by... Christ, I can't find it. The hell with it. People who have, have really hit challenging times can actually physically work themselves out of it in a number of cases through running, through biking, you know, like the runner's high. Um, Check out Ann Sturzinger's book, Disaster Fitness, for, you know, like when you're going through um, 
high anxiety, high stress for a long time, how to kind of turn that um, into helping your body get more physically fit. And then it's releasing its own in, endorphins oh, and you're, you're getting healthy. And there's, so there's much to this um, about the, the physical aspect of, of resilience. Um, and I, I did this for a long time. You know, I'd be out on the track at night, um, you know, worked a very stressful, very stressful job. Um, and would also do that, would run the city and stuff like that. And, and I was fine biking a ton and stuff, but that, that was helping me get those endorphins or that, that runner's high. So that's kind of not talked about as, as much. Okay, folks. Um, so in this study, there are 20 items on a four. So there's, there's five subscales. Those are, those are called constructs. So constructs and we, there's, there's, excuse me, there's constructs. There's four constructs, determination, endurance, adaptability, recuperability. Sound familiar? Yeah. We just talked about them, right? So, um, there are five questions in each of these sets to help inform these constructs or, or to help the researcher understand, um, how people are, are, able to, um, what their base level is in determination, endurance, adaptability. So, um, I'm going to read this and I, this can be a yes, no, this can be a, a Likert scale, which is like a one through 10. Um, typically I like Likert scales that are even numbered because like if it's one through 10, you have, to, you can't pick like the middle, like you, <laughs> You know, if it's if it's one through five, you can pick a three. That's that's the middle. One through ten, you 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 got to go with a you know, a five or a six. Um, but anyway, you, you get what I'm saying in there. So determination. I'm go, I'm going to go through these and then I'm going to answer yes or no. Determination. Once I set a goal, I am determined to achieve it. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I'd say yes for me. Um, and I, I'm going to answer these pretty much yes or no. I persevere at the things I decide despite difficulties. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the PhD, the uh, the book, um, expanding out my consulting, all of those be good examples of that. Being determined is an important part of my character. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, if there's, I've I've set goals and I I go out to achieve those goals. I keep trying for the things I want until I reach them. Yeah, I'm. I would say yes. It is my nature to be persevering. Yeah, and and I think that is also how I was raised. Endurance. So that was the first construct. So mostly determination. Yeah, I've got strong subsets of characteristics that support determination. Endurance. I am able to live through difficult times. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, I've not had to experience a lot of difficult times. Um, but I, the times that have been difficult, I have been able to live through them. I can withstand difficult situations. Yes, yes, believe it can. I can endure the problems that life brings. Yeah, and the older I get, I'm better at doing that. When I was younger, probably wasn't as well equipped to do that. I can survive even the hardest of times. I've never probably been exposed to the hardest of times, so I don't have an answer for that one. Um, I can endure even when I am attacked. I would say yes on that. Um, and when I say I can endure even the hardest of times, part of that would come in. I don't, I don't know if I have the, the skill set, the, like if we had no electricity and stuff like that, like, you know, how to live off the land, that type of skill set. Um, because I have pretty much been a city kid, you know? So, um, so endurance, yeah, not quite as strong there as, uh, as determination. 
Adaptability. Okay. I have the ability to adapt to difficult situations. I Yes, I believe completely believe that. I can change to fit into many kinds of circumstances. Yes, I can. I can find ways to adapt to unexpected conditions. I, I do that. I recognize what is my Taurus and when I'm outside of my Taurus, yeah, I do that very well. I am well able to adjust to problems that confront me. Yeah, especially working in school administration. That was nonstop, so <laughs> you get pretty good at that. I am very flexible with when my environment changes. Um, yeah, and more so as I'm older, less when I was younger. Um, but I, and, and it was weird because I remember my dad telling me, when you get like beyond 40, you'll just kind of roll with a lot of things. And I was probably in my 20s at that time. And I might have like dented my car up or something like that. And he's like, it's not a big deal. And he's like, it's, and Dave, like, yeah, that's type of stuff wouldn't be a big deal to me. All right, our last construct, recuperability. I recuperate even from even from things that hit me hard. Yeah, I do. Um, I recover from any misfortune that happens to me. I would say yes, but again, I've not had a substantial misfortune. You know, my house has never burned down. We've never been broke. Um, I've had supportive family, so... Um, not to the degree of what other people have, have been through. So in my benchmarks of the experiences I've had, the answer is yes, but I have not been tested to, to depth of what other people, people have been exposed to. I am able to bounce back from any kind of adversity, kind of the same statement on that. I always resume my life regardless of the type of setback. Yeah, I believe so. I can recover from any type of problem. I don't, I don't know. That's a hard, I mean, I don't, how, how the hell do you answer that? I mean, what is any type of problem for anyone kind of like to go through this? Um, so recuperability is, is hard. See, it's a hard question set. And then there's a lot of like, you have to, you address like, what does fatigue mean? So pitfall of asking these is like, people have to understand what the terminology, what is persevere? What is a difficult situation? What does recover mean? You know, are there depth, different types of recovery? You know, how much you recover, how much you don't. So that's where these, these are good because it boils things down into constructs and kind of hones you in but it's very hard to then take this and objectively test all of this, which, um, you know, was done in the study that, that I participated in, in with the, um, researchers from Iran, um, to try to get that more objective. But, um, yeah, so, so this, this was exciting and I hope you leave here understanding some of the different parts of, of resiliency, as in determination, endurance, adaptability, and recuperability as being four big factors in that. And also in the Western culture, just think of yourself of what resiliency means. And if you are, are if you are some, you know, if you're like a sponge, like we can crunch you down and, you know, we release the stressor, the pressure that you're probably going to come back. Is that you or are you someone who is going out and looking for, um, you know, social media um, groups and likes and putting everything out there in blogs and stuff like that to have other people externally be your resilience, um, which I don't again, I don't think that's I don't I don't think that's resilience. I don't I don't think that is a definition of being resilient. Um, and if, if that's the case, um, I don't think that's good. 
I, I would recommend strongly that you reevaluate to go internal. One of the things I mentioned that was in this, I gave a, a little nod to it, but it was mentioned in this study, and I've seen this in other places, um, of course, is physically working out. Um, you know, the, the walking and taking care of one's health, but even finding those runner's highs, quote unquote, um, of, of the effect that that has on resiliency and mental well-being and being able to recuperate. So this is the safety doc, Dr. David Proden. Thank you so much for listening into the podcast, the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California. John Grant, the League of Extraordinary Podcasters, including Aaron Clary and the Clary Podcast. Please also uh, go over to SoundCloud, check out Mountain Pass Podcast with TJ Martinell. You will love listening to this uh mountain climbing with his neighbor's dog making his own um fireplace uh set up uh, putting his uh rivers kind of stream in front of his his cabin and 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 you 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 will enjoy the mountain pass podcast so everybody again take care especially for those of you who have been impacted by hurricane florence um i've stayed in contact with katie pashan of triton relief group and you can find them online triton relief group it is a 501 c3 you can donate to them and actually they have a really cool feature um where they can they can um they they have what what their some of their needs are in addition to you know money for diesel fuel and things like that but you can go on an amazon page that they have and they might need you know whether it be paper towels or or certain cleaners or whatever and bing 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 and you can purchase those and because it is a 501c3 you can have that tax deduction but you can purchase those and they'll they go immediately than to the area where they are needed. So it's really, really well done. Um, Very ethical, very professional. These are the people who are making the difference in the lives of the tens of thousands of people severely impacted um, through Hurricane Florence. So please check that out again. Triton Relief Group, you can find them online. So... Take care, everybody, and you know what? The uh, Safety Doc's birthday is coming up in early November. So, yes, feel free to subscribe on Twitter as a gift to the Safety Doc. Share the show with your friends. Um, Anything else? Yes. I don't know if I really have any favorites. I used to like Skittles, kind of not into that anymore. But you can do me a favor by just sharing the show with a friend. Thank you so much. This has been David. Take care, everybody.
This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.